0: Well, we could do that all day, huh? He is worthy of our praise. Why don't you take your Bibles? Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, You can follow along if you have the Bible app. You can find us there. More events, you'll see our church. You can follow along with the scriptures and the outline and take notes there, or our ushers are coming around. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand in the air. They would love to give you a physical Bible. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Go to Mark chapter 1, and while you're turning there, I just want to let you know, I have had uh, a good opportunity lately to build uh, a relationship with uh, the city of Fairfax Police Department. And uh, I know you're like laughing because this this is actually a good thing. Like, I'm really thankful for what they do. And I wanted to build a relationship with them. And so over this last year, I was able to meet uh, with the police chief, Chief Pardini. Now, I just got to tell you that my first time going in to meet with the police chief, I was a little bit nervous. Okay, this is not a familiar world for me. I don't know the lingo. I I didn't grow up around law enforcement, and so I was kind of like uh, uh, relying on assumptions and expectations that I had based on the movies of what a police chief was going to be like. So I'm thinking, you've seen Zootopia? Anybody like? Anybody seen, like, I know who has kids in here. You've you seen Zootopia? That's what I was picturing, okay? The chief who had, like, he, he's a bull, and he's a big old mean, gruff, no nonsense, like, and, and so I was expecting I'd go in and I'd meet with the police chief, and at any time, he was just going to throw me out of the building because I was wasting his time. That's my expectation coming in. But what I found with Chief Pardini, that, that first meeting and, and subsequent meetings that I've had with him, is that he is incredibly kind and friendly and welcoming. And it's been, it's been really impressive to me as I've watched him interact with his officers and not uh, demand, but command respect. And uh, to, to hear him talk with his officers about wanting to, let's engage the community in policing, not just law enforcement. It's been fantastic to get to know him. And what I found was that I completely misunderstood what a police chief is supposed to be like and do. Because I'd made some wrong assumptions. My question this morning is, what happens if we misunderstand Jesus? Like everybody's got an opinion about Jesus. Everybody thinks they know something about Jesus. But is it possible that we have some wrong assumptions about Jesus? who he is, and, and, and what he came to do. And, and if you don't get this right, if you misunderstand Jesus, then maybe you would look to him for the benefits that you think that you'd get out of it, but you could miss your actual need. Or, or you could look to Jesus as he, he's like entertaining, but miss the fact that he's authoritative and fail to follow him. Or you could just reject him because you're a skeptic, you're not sure how this goes, and, and you're just gonna, you're gonna forge your own way, but you'd be rejecting Jesus your creator who made you, who knows how you work best and can give you purpose and real meaning in life. So what I'm trying to say to us is we can't afford to misunderstand Jesus. You need to know who he is. And don't form your own version of Jesus that that suits you because misunderstanding Jesus can be the difference between life and death, joy and despair. Truth and lies, meaning, and purpose, and emptiness, and where you will spend and experience eternity. You can't, can't afford to miss this. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna start preaching through a book of the Bible. I'm fired up to get back into a book of the Bible. We're just gonna work our way through it. This is gonna take us almost a year to get through, which I know sounds crazy, but in, in, in almost everybody that comes into contact with Jesus in this book misunderstands who he is. And the gospel of Mark was written to answer this question, who is Jesus? And, and, and what did he do? Why, 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 did he, why did he come? And really even push a little bit further to ask you this question, will you believe in him? Will you believe in him? And so whenever we start a, a new book, Whenever I start a new book, one of the first things that I do is I get out the book and I I turn to the back of the dust uh, jacket and and I want to look to see, maybe it's on the back, maybe it's on the inside. I want to see the author. I want to see who is it that wrote, so I kind of have a a, a better understanding of who's talking here. So if I was to ask you the question, who wrote the book of Mark? How many of you, does does anybody want to take a stab at that? Anybody have a wild guess as to who wrote the book of Mark? Anybody? Mark, good guess. I think you're right. I think you're right. It actually doesn't tell us in the text, but church tradition, and I think a reliable tradition, tells us that the person who wrote this book is Mark, or better known as John Mark. Ever heard of him? You're like, oh yeah, I think I heard something. John Mark was the guy that accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Now, now, maybe you're thinking about, like, well, well he, was he a disciple? John Mark wasn't a disciple. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples that, that Jesus picked. And so, so, so why, why is he writing? Well, history tells us that John Mark collected the eyewitness testimony of another really prominent disciple. Anybody got a guess on that one? I'm going to let you guess. I know nobody wants to be wrong. Nobody's going to guess. It's Peter. So when you are reading the Gospel of Mark, it's kind of like you're reading Peter's memoirs you're going to see that he's prominent and he's 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 in almost every one of the stories. And and so what John Mark is doing is collecting all the thoughts and the accounts and the eyewitness testimony that Peter had while he walked with Jesus. And he's writing these things down for you probably about 20 or 30 years after Jesus had died and rose again and ascended back into heaven. And because it's really Peter's eyewitness testimony, it carries apostolic authority for the early church. But John Mark's not just writing this for any Anybody. He's actually got a, a specific audience in mind. He is writing this book to Gentile Christians, not, not Jews. He's writing this to Gentile Christians in the city of Rome. If you know anything about Rome in those days, they were undergoing incredible persecution uh, under the Roman emperor Nero. And so what Mark is trying to do, he's trying to encourage and strengthen these believers by pointing to the person of Jesus in the midst of their trials so that they would believe in him. And so if I've got the, I, I got the author, I got the, the, the audience, let's, so the last thing that I do is I always read the table of contents, so I get a little bit of an idea where we're going. Just so you know, a lot of people will say that Mark is, you know, it's, it's the shortest one of the gospels, and so maybe it was kind of a little bit of a rushed job, and he didn't really do all that well at putting it together. I want to tell you, Mark is a masterful storyteller, and what he is doing is he, he is he is trying to weave these stories together to make a compelling argument. You're going to see that Mark's gospel is just, action-packed. He keeps it moving, and he's trying to prove something to you. And so in the first eight chapters, chapters one through eight, he's trying to answer this question, who is this guy? Who, who is this Jesus? And then the second half of the book, chapters nine through 16, he's going to be telling us, and why'd he come? What, 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 what'd he really come to do? So he's trying to prove something to you. You ready to jump in this? Y'all ready? Let's do it. Mark chapter one, verse one. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that could actually be um, a a title, if you will. It kind of explains Mark's purpose. you got to understand, Mark is not, he's not writing a timeline of chronological events for you to follow. He's trying to make an argument. And so if you're taking notes this morning, why don't you note this? We're just going to look at the claim. The first thing that we see is the claim that Mark is going to make in verse 1. And here is the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, I just want to point out that this is the, um, this is the only time that Mark is going to tell you explicitly what he thinks. The rest of the book, he's just going to lay out all these stories and he's going to compile a little of them in a way to kind of present to you and say, now you draw your own conclusion. Who do you think he is? But he's telling us his claim is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Now, whenever you hear the word Christ, you just have to understand Christ is not Jesus's last name. Okay. That's not how it works. Christ is actually a title and it means the anointed one. Because when someone in the Old Testament was anointed with oil, that was kind of symbolic of they were receiving the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish a specific task that they were given. Oftentimes, the the, the prophet would be anointed with oil, or a king, rather, would be anointed with oil for that specific task. Well, in the Old Testament, that word for anointed one is the word Mashiach, or the Messiah, there was this promise that there was one who was going to come. He was the Messiah, and he was going to come and establish God's kingdom on earth. What you got, to, I mean, like, that's pretty significant. If, you're, if you put yourself in the, the shoes of the Jews during Jesus' time, because uh, when, when they're there in Israel, they're not in charge. Who's in charge? Rome's in charge. It's the Romans' world and everybody else is just living in it. And I realize it's kind of hard for us to kind of appreciate that, but if you could just imagine, I don't know, like like say China like takes over the world and, and they, they're like they oppress us and they put us in our place and we gotta pay them and they make the rules and, and they're in charge and, and we're just underneath them. That that would be the feeling that the Jews had of this superpower that was over them. And and, and so man, they're 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 kind of hoping and expecting then that this Messiah, this, this Messiah, this one was going to be a conquering hero who was going to come and he was going to fight for them and he was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to set them free and he would be king. And you got to know, that would be good news if that guy showed up, right? Like, man, that's the one that's going to set us free. But Jesus, instead of overthrowing the Romans, ends up being tortured and crucified by them. I mean, you think about like how, how how disappointing that would have been for a couple of his followers who were thinking, like, this is the guy that's gonna lead us into battle and 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 he's gonna set us free, and then to watch like he's stripped and embarrassed and like they just treat him like he's a criminal and they kill him. But Mark is making the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the king. Who's going to establish God's kingdom. And so for the rest of the book now, Mark is just going to kind of help us and show us how all of these people misunderstood what that meant. And before we move on, I just want to say, we need this king. We, we pray this, maybe you pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like we, we want, there, there, there's a lot of chaos In our world there's this this world is messed up and and we can't always trust our leaders but imagine if you could imagine if you could trust your leader imagine if you knew that your leader was just and that he was good and that he can and he will defeat all evil and that he can set the record straight he can give you peace that's the kind of king that we need and that's what he's saying is his claim about Jesus and he also says that he is the the son of God meaning Jesus is no mere man Jesus is the divine son of God. So in in this book, just so you know, there there are going to be three groups of people that we're going to come in contact with constantly. The first group is his disciples, the people that he picks and says, I want you to follow me. The second group is the crowds, all the people that are going to see all the miracles and all the things in the teaching that he's doing, and, and they're going to follow a little bit. And then you've got this third group over here, the religious leaders. They don't like Jesus. Here's the crazy thing. In this book, none of them understand this. None of them get it. In fact, it's actually shocking the one person that Mark records in this book who actually gets it right. But we won't get there until next August. In, <laughs> should, should I give you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a sneak peek. Okay? Here's, this, this is so shocking to me. The one person who draws the right conclusion in this gospel is a Roman centurion who's standing at the foot of the cross and when he looks up and he sees Jesus, he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. He got it. And Mark is hoping that by the end, you will too. That you will understand this is the beginning of the gospel. Meaning, the, the, the gospel means good news, right? So what he's saying is, there's something new, something, something exciting, something awesome is happening. And Mark is making this claim. Don't, don't misunderstand who he is. Don't dismiss him. Don't reject him. He's the Christ, the Son of God. That's his claim. Now, let's see if he can prove it. Let's see if he can prove it. He's going to try to prove this claim with testimonies. And so why don't you note this? Let's first note the testimony of the messenger. The testimony of the messenger. Follow along with me as I read, starting in in verse 2. Here's how he's going to try to prove his claim. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger Before your face, who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate. Locusts and wild honey, that's gross. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice what's missing. You know notice what's missing at the beginning of this gospel? There's no manger scene. There's there's no birth narrative. There's a reason that he does that, and it's not because he's a Scrooge who hates Christmas. Remember, he is not giving us a chronological timeline of events. What Mark is trying to do is prove this claim. And if he can prove to you that this is life-altering good news, that the king has showed up, then the first thing that he wants to do is highlight what the Romans would have expected if a king had showed up. And if a king shows up, if there's really good news, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be a messenger. There's going to be a herald. There's going to be somebody that comes and says, hey, everybody, I got really good news. The king is here. And, and, and so how does he do that? He, he, he draws them back into the scriptures, actually. Verse 2, he says, as it is written in Isaiah. Now, that's really important for the Gentiles as they're hearing this. Because what he's trying to do is help them understand this didn't come out of nowhere. Okay. This, this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. In fact, you can't really understand the gospel unless you have the context of the scriptures of the Old Testament. God is not scrapping his Old Testament plan like, well, I guess that didn't work. going to have to start over. I guess I'll send my son. That's not what's going on. It's a new day, but it's not a new plan. This is the beginning of God's final saving act. And so he starts to, come back into the scriptures to prove it. And he starts to quote from the book of Isaiah. But that that quotation there, part of it is also from the the prophet Malachi, which wasn't uncommon to kind of emphasize the most prominent prophet if there were a couple uh, mixed together. But here's what he's saying. From the scriptures, we got this picture that before the Christ, before the Messiah would show up, there would be a forerunner, a messenger who would come to prepare the way of the Lord. And the Jews, just so you know, they were expecting that messenger to be the prophet Elijah. No, no, why were they expecting that? Well, Malachi uh, chapter 4, at the very end of our Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 tells us that, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so they're expecting Elijah to show up. In fact, uh, if you were here with us this spring when we did our Passover Seder, I kind of worked you through some of that. Uh, You'll notice that even today, Jews, when they celebrate their Passover, one of the things that they'll do at the table is they'll leave a, a special place setting for Elijah. They got the, 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 the plates out there. The, the cup is there. There's a chair. Don't, don't sit on Elijah. That's, that's Elijah's chair. And then at some point in the meal, they'll have one of the kids, usually the youngest one, go and open the door. And the kid's supposed to open the door and look and see, like, is Elijah out here? And, and now that's symbolic, but why are they doing that? Because they are thinking, if Elijah shows up, that means the Messiah is coming. That means the one that is promised is here. And so what Mark is trying to help us understand is that the messenger has already come in the spirit of Elijah, and it's John. It's John the Baptist. Now, how do you know that? Well, because of verse 6. This, this, is, this is crazy. It tells us that, that um, John, was, he was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. That's just weird, okay? Does anybody else think that this might have been the start of men's ministry in the Bible? Like, we're, we're, we're going to do some wilderness thing, you know? Like, it's going to be a little, little hippie live off of the land, uh, all natural kind of thing. Like, that's, that's not what he's doing. He's actually trying to help you understand this is the spirit of Elijah. Because notice what he's wearing. Look at what he's wearing there in verse 6. He's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Now, I'm just going to let you guess. What do you think Elijah wore in the Old Testament? What do you think he wore? Well, 2 Kings chapter 1 Verse 8 tells us that Elijah wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. Now, this is one of those, a lot of people will criticize Mark for not including the details. Mark includes the exact details that he wants to in order to help prove his point. It couldn't be more clear what he's trying to help you understand is that this is the testimony of the messenger that God said would come before Messiah shows up. And he's preparing the way of the Lord. And in order to do that, verse 4, he's he's baptizing them in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so what he's trying to say is like, listen, listen, the king is coming. It's time to get ready. Judgment is coming. And as as one author has said, when the king comes back, that's only good news if you're on the king's side. And so what John is doing is he's really trying to highlight a little bit like, y'all, we need to get ready. Okay, we have a problem. We are sinners, and he's calling them to repent. Repent means that you would turn. Turn from your sin and turn to God. Now, now like, if, if we can just stop here and just say, this is one of the points where I think we often misunderstand the Bible. We misunderstand Jesus. Because a lot of us would like a, I want a non-confrontational Jesus. Can I? Can I like, can we, do we have to talk about sin? Like, that's not going to bring people here. Like, we want to be able to get more people to come to church. Like, let's not talk about that. Like, let's, let's, can we, let's, let's, uh, let's just talk about um, how God is loving. Or, or can we just like agree that, that people are kind of basically good and, and, and be optimistic? And while well, 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 I would say to you that no one is more optimistic than Christ and that he is so full of joy, and yet you cannot under, misunderstand him. He is loving, but he is also holy. And, and he doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He is the judge, and my sin is a big deal. And so the gospel really confronts us in our sin and helps us understand, man, I got to repent. I'm a mess. And so God sent John ahead of, the, ahead of Jesus to help them understand their deep need for God to forgive them. And notice verse 4 where he's baptizing. Look, look at where he's baptizing. He's out baptizing in the wilderness. The wilderness is where God met with his people in the Exodus when he brought them out of Egypt. Remember that? He parts the Red Sea and he brings them out into the wilderness because he wants to be with them and he wants to make a covenant with them. And so what John is telling God's people again is, come back out to the wilderness. Come back out to the place where you can meet with God and where you can experience grace. What he's helping us understand is that we need to be forgiven. And, and the gospel tells us that God forgives repentant sinners. Now, don't, 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 don't make the mistake of thinking that, that you are forgiven by getting dunked underwater baptism is just an outward expression of an inward reality that god has forgiven me but what he's calling us to is to turn from our sin and and get to the point where we realize god i'm a sinner i am at your mercy you got to forgive me because i got no hope if you don't that's the place where his people need to be and look what happens verse five all the all the country of judea and all of jerusalem were going out to love it that's a lot of people right and they're coming out of Jerusalem, the city. And, and so in essence, what he's trying to help them is, come back out. Get, come, come out of your routines. Get out of your, the comfort of your homes. Get out of the city. Come back out into the wilderness where you can confess your sin and seek God's forgiveness. And then he's going to preach to them. Once he's got him out there, verse 7, he starts preaching. He says, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. You just see him humbling himself and exalting the Messiah to come. And and here's John's testimony that Jesus is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now in the Old Testament, the only one who gets to baptize with the Holy Spirit is God. So you know what John just said? The one who's coming after me He's the one we've been looking for. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Don't misunderstand Jesus. He is holy. And He will deal with our sin. And we need a Messiah. We need a Messiah that is going to deliver us but not just from the political oppression and the chaos in this world, all the evil that we see around us. He's the one that can deliver us from the evil within. He's the one that can deliver us from sin. And that's good news. So Mark proves it with the, the testimony of the messenger. But now note the testimony of the Father. Here's the testimony of the Father, verse 9. He says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, that's a word that Mark loves. Okay, you're gonna, we're going to see that word a lot. He's an action-packed guy. He just wants to keep the story moving. I got a lot of things I want to tell you. Immediately, as soon as Jesus comes out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, we all know that Jesus got baptized. But can I ask the question that maybe you're thinking, why? I mean, like, John's John's out there baptizing, and and it's a baptism that helping them understand that they needed to repent because they're sinners and they need to be forgiven. So why is Jesus getting baptized? Something crazy is going on. Something vastly different is going on in his baptism. Because it's not that he's a sinner in need of forgiveness. But when Jesus goes under the water in baptism, in that moment, he is identifying with sinners. Jesus is identifying with his mission. Jesus understands why he came. The reason that he's here is because he was coming in order to bear the brunt and the full weight of God's judgment and wrath in our place. He's going to step in front. Don't misunderstand Jesus. I think sometimes we get, we we, we kind of default to religion. When we think about Christianity. Religion says that you need to be good. You need to meet a certain standard. Maybe, maybe you gotta you gotta pray to God, or you gotta you know like confess your sins to a priest or or you need to make a pilgrimage to Mecca, you need to do all you got to give some money. There's always some money involved. Religion says that you have to do. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus came to lay down or to uphold laws and rules that you have to follow in order to be right with God. That's not good news. If Jesus was coming to say, hey, I'm going to tell you the rules. Here's how, here's the expectations. Here's what you need to do. I'm going to demonstrate it. You just be like me. And if you can do these rules, if you can carry this out, man, you're going to be good. You'll be good with God. That's not good for those of us who can't do that. What's disappointing to me is how many times I'll be, I'll be talking with somebody and, and I'll, I'll be having a gospel conversation trying to help them understand what the word says. That It's not about what religion says. And I'll ask them a question that's to the effect of, why? Why should God let you into heaven? Why? Why should God let you live with him for all of eternity? And it's not shocking to me, but it's discouraging. There are too many versions of, well, you know, I, I think I'm a good person. I mean, I try. I try to, I try to be really good. Listen, if you think that's Christianity, then you are missing the gospel and you have misunderstood Jesus and you are going to spend eternity separated from him in hell because you're not trusting in him, you're trusting in yourself, you're trusting in what you can do and you think you can earn it. And the gospel is clear, we could never be good enough. Only Jesus is good and Jesus knew that. And Jesus knew that was why he came. And so at the very beginning of his ministry, when he goes under the water in baptism, he's starting his mission knowing that he was going to step in. He was going to step in front and take the place of sinners and receive the wrath of God. And, and Paul tells us later, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the, the great exchange, that, that Jesus takes my sin and he gives me his righteousness, and I don't deserve that, but that's good news. That's the gospel, and, and, and that's going to become really obvious in the second half of the book of Mark when, when, when Jesus knows he's going to the cross, and yet what's interesting is that he knows it right here. He knows why he's coming. And at the beginning, he knows that only he could save us from our sins by dying on the cross and giving us his righteousness. Don't misunderstand Jesus. Religion says do. Jesus says done. It's done. I've done the work. But I also want you to notice that when Jesus comes to be baptized, he's he's coming volitionally. He's coming of his own will. So he's choosing to obey and to accept his mission. Are you thankful for a Savior who obeys? Look what happens, verse 10. Look what happens when he does. When he came up out of the water, immediately, immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. Now that word, torn open, appears two times in this book. Here and at the end. In the end, in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, after Jesus dies on the cross, it says that the curtain of the temple was Torn in two from top to bottom. So both times this word is used of supernatural events where Jesus is revealed as the son of God. This is the one we've been looking for. And then it says that the the Spirit is descending on him like a dove. Not a a dove, but like a dove. And you remember, this is is the anointing. Remember when someone got anointed with oil, it was representative of them receiving the Holy Spirit in order for them to accomplish a specific task. Well, this is what happens when Jesus comes out of the water. He is anointed, commissioned for this task at hand. He goes under the water, accepting his mission, and he comes up, and the Father affirms, approves, and anoints him. And he starts to speak, verse 11. A voice came from heaven. This is, this is God speaking. This is the testament. We better pay attention to this, right? God's about to speak. And I, I just want to tell you, in my Bible, I, have a, I drew the little Trinity symbol. This is a fascinating text for us in, in our understanding of who God is. Because we believe in one God. Only one God. Count them. One. How many gods? One God. But he exists in three persons. Not one person that kind of shows up in different personalities. That, that, that's heresy. We have one God, three persons, and every person of the Trinity is present right here in front of us. You see the the Father speaking from heaven. You see the, the Son Jesus going down in the waters of baptism and now the, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And here's his testimony. You are my beloved. Not that, not that Jesus becomes the Son in that moment. That's heresy too. He is the Son, and he always has been from eternity past. In fact, later, Jesus is going to pray. In John 17, he's praying to the Father, and he says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, the Son has existed with the Father for all eternity in a loving relationship. And so what the Father is saying right here is he's just affirming Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He says, with you, I am well pleased. You please me. And those words echo the prophecy of Isaiah. Because in the book of Isaiah, again, this is one of the most important prophets that we had. He was telling us that this this Messiah was going to come. He tells us that this specific person that he calls the servant of the Lord was going to come. And who is this servant? Who is this servant? Well, Isaiah 42, I have it on the screen. Isaiah 42, verse 1, God says this, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I am well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. It was that servant that became the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So God is saying, you're it. And the Holy Spirit is going to empower Jesus to accomplish this mission to go to the cross. And only he can be pleasing to God. He does what the Father wants. In fact, what's crazy is Isaiah 53 also tells us that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. His Father wanted Him to do this. And only the Son pleases the Father. But now, because He does please the Father, He becomes our example to us, too. You know that you can please your Father? We have been adopted as sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. How did He do it? He was anointed, living through the power of the Holy Spirit, And so when we're living through the power of the Spirit as adopted sons and daughters, someday we might hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. God is trying to help us understand who this son is. He says, you are my son, which also is an echo of Psalm 2. i got to tell you, Psalm 2 is one of my favorites. Psalm 2 is kind of like a play. At the beginning of Psalm 2, all the nations come together, and they're angry. They're mad. And they're coming to fight against the Lord and against his anointed. And then the next scene, you see, God up in heaven, he's kind of laughing. He's like, really? Like, that's your move? Are you ready for mine? You ready for my move? Here's his move. Psalm 2, verse 6, I have it on the screen. Here's what he says. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's my move. I'm going to set my king on Zion. Verse seven, the king says, I will, de- I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. So in this moment, when, when Jesus is being baptized, it's really a coronation. God is coming down. When he comes up out of the water, the spirit is coming down and he's setting this and saying, you're the king. You are my son. I love you. You are the one that can set all things right. Could Mark have proved his claim with any more authority? You got the testimony of the messenger. You got the testimony of the father. But now let's look quickly at the proclamation of Jesus. Here's the proclamation of Jesus. Verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel the proclamation of Jesus verse 14 he's proclaiming the gospel of God what's his proclamation then the gospel it's good news and what he's saying what's what is it verse 15 the time is fulfilled it's here it's now there's urgency don't wait you got to respond to this it's here The kingdom of God is at hand. What he's saying is the king, the one who can come and destroy the enemy and defeat all evil is here. Now, how do I know that that's what he's saying? Because that's, he just showed us that he can. Verse 12, no sooner had Jesus been baptized and anointed with the Spirit than the Holy Spirit, it says, drove him out into the wilderness to face temptation by Satan. What's fascinating to me is that Jesus does what we cannot. Because man, we fall prey to Satan's tricks and his lies, and how, how quickly do we give in to the temptation to sin, to, 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 to lie, to, to save face, to cover up something that's going on, or to hide when we're ashamed, or... Hold on to what we have, and I don't want to. I don't want to give, and I don't want to. I don't want to be generous with my stuff. I want to cheat the system to our advantage, or 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 covet what we don't have, or indulge in our sexual lusts, or to use our words to kind of repay and to hurt people to get get back at them, or or lash out in anger when we do feel guilty. Just like the the temptation, just ignore it and and stuff that the the temptation, just be lazy. And I don't really want to read God's word. I don't want to spend time in prayer, and 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 I just don't feel like it. I'm going to try to handle life on my own. In in my own in my power and man we quickly fall to satan's lies and the temptation to rebel against god but not jesus not jesus he walks out in victory i gotta tell you this is a fascinating point in scripture for us this is the thing that we've been looking for the whole bible because back in genesis chapter 3 you remember that satan showed up in the form of a serpent and he deceived eve and adam just gave right into that temptation and they sinned against god and in that man, like God created this beautiful world. And it looks like the, the the bad guy won. He messed it up. But in the midst of that curse, God made a promise. While he was cursing Satan, the serpent, he said, her offspring, someone that comes, that is born of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we're like, okay, wait, wait, wait someone's going to come and defeat the bad guy. There's, 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 there's going to be a hero. Who's it going to be? It's, it's going to be someone from the woman. Someone's going to show up that can take out the evil and destroy it. Who's it going to be? And so we're kind of looking for it. Genesis chapter 3. We think Genesis chapter 4. There's Eve's kids. Maybe it's one of them. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's Cain. No, it's not him. He's a bad guy. Uh, Abel. Maybe it's Abel. Oh, he's dead. It's not him. We flip a page. Genesis chapter 6. Noah shows up. Noah's a righteous man. Maybe it's Noah. Maybe he's the guy. But then in Genesis 9, he's drunk and naked in his tent. We're like, okay, it's not him. But chapter 12, Abraham. Maybe it's Abraham. He believes God, right? But then he lies, and he doesn't trust God's plan, not him. Maybe it's David. Maybe David, he's, the, he's a man after God's own heart. Maybe he's the one that can defeat no, he's he sleeps with another man's wife, has that guy murdered. It's like not him. We're waiting. The whole Old Testament, where's the one that's going to come? Who's the one that's going to be the hero that can defeat all evil? And in just two verses, Mark affirms our hopes. There he is. He's the one. Because Jesus walks into the battlefield with Satan, with the Spirit upon him and God's angels ministering to him, and he walks out unscathed and ready to proclaim this gospel. The king is here. The one who can defeat all evil and can crush Satan. That's my king. What's encouraging is that he's gone through it. He suffered too. But he came through it victoriously. So what do I do now? Well, what does Jesus say in verse 15? I think he gives us the correct response. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. If you wanted a big idea for these verses, I would just say that's it. Believe in the gospel. That's the appropriate response for us. When we see terrorist attacks that are fueled by hatred and evil and swirling rumors of injustice and corruption by our leaders in power and all these accusations piling up of sexual harassment and immorality by our star culture makers. When we see more broken lies, people that we know, it starts to hit the home. What do we expect? This is what happens in the world when we reject our king. But as much as I'd like to think, that's not me. I'm not like that. The gospel tells me that I am no better, that I am a rebellious sinner and I need a Savior and His name is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, the King, who can fix this broken world and He is the Son of God who can satisfy the wrath of God that I deserve in this ultimate demonstration of God's love for me on the cross. Do you believe? Will you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus? Father, I'm just praying that You would impress this upon us. Lord, we love that You would care for broken sinners. Lord, we don't want to act like we're the victim here. We're the rebels. We are the ones that decided that we could make our own good, decided that we could do it our own way, And not trust you and not believe that you are good. And Lord, when the gospel starts to confront us, that's not comfortable. I don't like that, but I need that because it it reminds me to lift my eyes up and see there's my king, there's the Son of God who died so that I could be set free, I could be forgiven. Everyone's eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to just say, that's what I want today. Maybe the Lord is just kind of helping you understand that you are a sinner. Maybe you've been trusting yourself. You thought you were good. You thought you were okay. You're starting to realize, I know I'm not. I deserve judgment, but I want to be saved. need to trust Jesus. Don't trust yourself. Trust Jesus. He died in your place. and Nobody's looking around, but if you would say, man, today, I want that. I've never done that before. I want to ask God to save me from my sin today. I believe. I believe he is the Christ, the son of God. I want to believe. Would you just look up here at me and raise your hand if that's you say I've never done that before I want to do that today I want to know that I could live with him for all of eternity that I can be forgiven so that's me today father we're going to trust that we do believe that we have repented of our sin the gospel is not just for new believers the gospel is for all of us that you would draw our hearts again to our Savior, that we would worship you, giving you praise, that you are a God who loves us. We thank you.